Welcome to Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, the podcast. I'm your host, Madeline. And I'm your co-host, Kenna. Uh, Kenna, today I wanted to start by asking you, what's your favorite article of clothing right now? My favorite article of clothing right now? Oh my gosh, now uh, I am drawing a uh, a major blank. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, because it changes just so much from day to day. Um, I go through phases where like I'll have one t-shirt that is like my absolute favorite, and then it'll be like, uh, you know, Gautier mesh shirt I got years ago, and then it'll be um, terrible new metal shirt, and then it'll be some sort of, I don't know, like weird skirt with like a cargo pocket. Oh wait, lately it's been this Miss 60 skirt from like 2005 that just has everything from 2005. That's like, the button is too big, the pockets are too low. Like, it's like next level. Okay, so if I were to steal that skirt from you, that skirt you love so much for all of its 2005-ness, would you say an appropriate response would be for me to spend the next six months of my life being tortured and abused every day in inhumane conditions with little to no contact with the outside world? Uh, no, because I've had my favorite articles of clothing stolen or had to sell them for money and I've recovered. Right. Okay. What if I got like mad at you and then I just like punched you in the face right now? Uh, would you want me to spend the next three years of my life being tortured and abused every day in inhumane conditions with little to no contact to the outside world? Uh, no, but you're asking the wrong person because I'd be like, I probably <laughs> deserve being punched in the face. You don't. You I would don't I would probably <laughs> actually like apologize and be like, I'm sorry. No. Um, Well, the point I'm getting at, which you probably have already guessed, is that uh, those things seem a little extreme, and yet they are uh, typical sentences for committing the crimes of, like, petty theft and assault, Uh, which means today we must be talking about prisons. Oh. Oh. (laughs) So to understand the current prison system in the U.S. where we live, uh, we need to start in the 1600s, and this is going to be a doozy of an episode because obviously there's going to be descriptions of highly racialized violence in it and it's not going to be fun to talk about but I think it's a conversation uh, we need to talk about especially today in the United States. So in 1619 this thing called a privateer which I had to look up it's an armed ship operated by a private person holding a government commission and authorized for use in war especially in the capture of enemy merchant shipping raided a Portuguese slave ship and brought 20 enslaved African people to the British colony of Jamestown Virginia. While this wasn't the first incident of slavery in the United States it's widely considered to be a significant starting point in the horrifying and atrocious slave trade that flourished here in the following years. Slavery and forced labor had always existed, but the slavery in the U.S. um, was race-based in a way that people had not really seen before. And I swear this ties in with our our current prison system. So on July 9th, 1640, the first African man in Virginia was sentenced to be enslaved for life after three runaway indentured servants were captured. The General Court of Colonial Virginia gave the white servant owners um, the opportunity to get increased like retribution for this act. And John Punch, a black man, was sentenced to servitude for life. And this was the first time this had happened in the United States. And just a year later, in 1641, Massachusetts became the first North American colony to recognize slavery as a legal institution in the U.S., So in 1662, a Virginia law was passed stating that the status of a mother determined if a black child would be enslaved, meaning from this point on, African children would literally be born into a life of slavery in what would become the United States. And up to this point, enslaved people were still able in some cases to obtain their freedom. Like in Virginia in the 1600s, Anthony Johnson secured his freedom from indentured servitude, acquired land, and became a member of his community. Elizabeth Key was successfully able to appeal a colony's legal system to set her free after she'd been what they deemed wrongfully enslaved, which, you know, everybody's wrongfully enslaved, but whatever. Uh, In 1676, though, there was a major turning point in how this was treated. Nathaniel Bacon was a wealthy white property owner who wanted to remove all indigenous people from Virginia so landowners like him could expand their property. But the governor of Virginia uh, thought this was a bad idea and caused a bunch of fighting with nearby indigenous people. 
and might make them uh, unite and destroy the colony. So Bacon organized his own militia consisting of both white and black indentured servants and enslaved black people to attack the nearby tribes, promising them their freedom in exchange. And this caused a power struggle to emerge between Bacon and the Virginia governor. And in September, 1676, Bacon's militia captured Jamestown and burnt it to the ground. Uh, Bacon died of a fever like a month later, which is kind of one of those things that just happened before we had access to modern medicine and the rebellion fell apart. But Virginia's wealthy plantation owners were left super shaken by this. The idea that white and black servants and slaves had been so easily united to destroy the capital at the time. So Virginia's lawmakers began at this point to make a legal distinction between white and black people, permanently enslaving Virginians of African descent and giving poor white indentured servants and farmers some new rights and status. So according to the Oxford English Dictionary, the first appearance in print of the adjective white in reference to uh, a person with a lighter complexion was in 1671. But after the rebellion in 1676, this usage started to increase. And historian Robin D.G. Kelly explained, many of the European-descended poor whites began to identify themselves, if not directly with the rich whites, certainly with being white. And here you get the emergence of this idea of a white race as a way to distinguish themselves from dark-skinned people who they associated with perpetual slavery. And this is how slavery that developed in the next couple of centuries in the what now is the U.S. was extremely race-based compared to other slavery that had existed globally before it. So over the next 40 years, increasingly harsh and restrictive laws were passed, culminating in the Virginia Slave Codes of 1705. And the Virginia Slave Code stated, amongst other things, that non-Christians brought to the Virginia colonies would be slaves, even if they converted to Christianity after. It also allowed slave owners to punish slaves without fear of legal repercussions and specified the rewards for the capture of runaway slaves. And sorry, I used slaves there because that's how the text was written, but it's obviously better to use the term enslaved people. In the 1700s alone, the United States saw an influx of up to 7 million African people who were stolen from their homelands and forced into labor and inhumane conditions against their will. The transatlantic slave trade operated from the 16th century through the 19th century, carrying enslaved people, crops, and goods between West Africa, Caribbean or American colonies, and the European colonial powers. Enslaved African people were forced to work on the plantations that grew those crops, which were then exported to Europe, European goods, in turn, were used to purchase more enslaved African people who were then brought on the sea lane west from Africa to the Americas. Enslaved people from Africa worked primarily on tobacco, rice, and indigo plantations from Maryland and Virginia down south to Georgia. In places with more seasonal crops, uh, enslaved people were also leased to other families in the off-seasons to work in their fields or homes. And slave masters, who were wealthy plantation owners, um, existed, of course, but also members of the middle class, like teachers, lawyers, business owners, and doctors owned slaves. And enslaved people produced 95% of all British exports during this period between the establishment of Virginia and the American Revolution. These people were worked to death because it was cheaper to simply buy a new one than care for them as though they were objects you run through and not people. The conditions were horrific, some of the worst for enslaved people throughout all of human history, far worse than Roman slaves or medieval serfs, according to all modern historians. Uh, and as a white woman, I don't want to be gratuitous with the descriptions in any way or profit off of black suffering, but I also don't want to underscore the severity of the treatment these people endured. Um, enslaved people were occasionally provided with homes, but often had to build their own. Living conditions were cramped. Food and clothing was scarce. Uh, slave masters intentionally spent as little money as possible caring for enslaved people. Enslaved people worked from sunrise to sunset, usually every single day. Some uh, got one day off per month. Some were allowed Sundays off, but this was considered pretty rare, and it would be like if your slave master imagined himself to be benevolent or something, which is obviously impossible and horrifying. Um, but the work included planting and harvesting, as well as clearing land, digging ditches, cutting and hauling wood, slaughtering livestock, and making repairs. Enslaved people were often forced to work as unpaid mechanics, blacksmiths, drivers, carpenters, and women in particular were forced to cook and care for their tormentors' families in addition to spinning, weaving, sewing, etc. Um, there was also obviously horrific sexual exploitation, um, which again, we don't need to get into details because I don't want to be gratuitous, but it, it's 
awful. And um, what's especially jarring is that a lot of this is rewritten um, by mostly white historians today to sometimes act like they're cute little relationships that happened. But it, there's no consent. It, there's no way anybody could have consented in a power dynamic. And many enslaved people had to watch their partners be harmed in this way, and they were powerless to assist in these dynamics. And all of this was endured on insufficient diets um, because slave owners didn't want to feed people. The conditions were unsanitary, um, and this combined with the gruesome hard labor meant that enslaved people were highly susceptible to disease, and it wasn't treated, and they were forced to work through it. Child mortality on plantations was between 66 to 90 percent on rice plantations uh, where malaria was rampant. And of course, if enslaved people underperformed, they would be punished through whippings, torture, mutilation, imprisonment, murder, um, or sometimes they were sold, in which case entire families would be torn apart. And despite these horrific conditions, um, enslaved people did find ways to fight against their oppressors, obviously slowing down their work paces, breaking machinery, destroying crops. They learned to read and write, even though it was forbidden by law. Some burned down buildings, some killed their tormentors outright. Thousands found ways to escape, leaving the plantations and living in hiding, sometimes in communities together um, in forests and swamps. And many organized and revolted. Even forming communities amongst themselves while enslaved was an act of rebellion, marrying, having children, building families, as well as practicing religion and creating an underground culture built on storytelling, singing, planning, and uh, like making fun of the people who were oppressing them as like a coping mechanism. Uh, they passed down survival skills like hunting, fishing, gathering food, and creating herbal medicine. And to combat the racism they experienced, many parents told their children that they were in fact superior to the lazy whites who are incapable of working for themselves. And black culture emerged in the United States uh, despite these absolutely demoralizing and torturous conditions, um, which continued really into recent history. I know growing up, I was always told it was so long ago, but you know, this continued into the 1800s, which was not that long ago. I think my grandmother was born in like 1920. So, you know, this is not, this is not that, that long ago. Um, in 1688, Pennsylvania Quakers were, uh, some of the first people in, you know, this area to adopt a formal anti-slavery resolution. And it was called the 1688 Germantown Quaker petition. And it was drafted by a German attorney and three other Quakers and, um, you know, they got together and wrote this petition and they were like, hey, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That doesn't include slavery. This is barbaric and awful and we should not be doing this. Um, but the idea of abolishing slavery at that time, nobody was on board with it. Uh, nobody wanted to pass a judgment on it. And it wasn't until um, way later, like 100 years later, that other people started to get on board. Um, other white people, I should say. By the 1780s, free black people and other anti-slavery northerners had begun helping enslaved people escape from southern plantations to the north via a loose network of safe houses, which we now know of today as the Underground Railroad. And by the 1800s, the abolitionist movements began to pick up steam with free black people like Frederick Douglass and white supporters like William Lloyd Garrison um, publishing a lot of anti-slavery uh, information. And the northern states started to get especially on board. By the 1830s, the Underground Railroad was gaining momentum. Harriet Tubman uh, was a conductor, and they, along with station masters like Frederick Douglass and even Secretary of State William H. Seward and Pennsylvania Congressman Thaddeus Stevens, helped between 40,000 and 100,000 people escape to freedom in the northern states. And in 1820, a bitter debate over the federal government's right to restrict slavery over Missouri's application for statehood ended in a compromise. Uh, Missouri was admitted to the Union as a slave state, Maine as a free state, and all Western territories north of Missouri's southern border were to be free. And this was called the Missouri Compromise. But in 1857, when an enslaved man sued for his freedom on the grounds that his master had taken him into free territory, the Dred Scott decision by the Supreme Court effectively repealed this Missouri Compromise by ruling all territories were open to slavery. So on September 22, 1862, Lincoln issued a preliminary emancipation proclamation, and on January 1, 1863, he made it official uh, that slaves within any state or designated part of a state in rebellion shall be then thenceforward and forever free. This freed some 3 million enslaved people, and the Emancipation Proclamation deprived the Confederacy of the bulk of its labor forces and put international public opinion 
strongly on the Union side. And all of this obviously culminated in the Civil War. And at the end of the Civil War in 1865, the 13th Amendment was passed, which is what we were trying to get to by going through, obviously, the horrific, disturbing history of slavery in the United States. And despite the fact that many enslaved people would not know it for decades to come because they were relatively cut off from the rest of the world, the 13th Amendment is what officially ended slavery in the U.S. Almost. So the 13th Amendment states, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. And people who had previously relied on the labor of enslaved people, who are now out of a labor supply, saw an opportunity there with the wording, except as a punishment for crime. So in late 1865, Mississippi and South Carolina enacted the first of what would come to be known as Black Codes, which were basically a series of laws designed to make being Black in the United States a crime, so that these formerly enslaved people could be arrested and thus legally forced to labor for free again. Mississippi's law required Black people to have written evidence of employment for the coming year each January. If they left before the end of the contract, they would be forced to forfeit all earlier wages, and they were subject to arrest. And nearly all of the Southern states enacted their own black codes that same year, 1865, and in 1866, the, the following year. Some states limited the type of property that black people could own, uh, while virtually all of the former Confederate states passed strict vagrancy and labor contract laws, as well as so-called anti-enticement measures designed to punish anyone who offered higher wages to a black laborer who was already under a contract. Black people who broke labor contracts were subject to arrest, beating and forced labor, and apprenticeship laws forced many minors, either orphans or those whose parents were deemed unable to support them, into unpaid labor for white planters. Passed by a political system in which black people effectively had no voice, the black codes were enforced by all white police and state militias, which were usually made up of Confederate veterans of the Civil War across the South. And black people were effectively forced into slavery again. In 1871, the Virginia Supreme Court ruled that a convicted person was, quote, a slave of the state. After the American Civil War, the number of U.S. penitentiaries in the South and West spiked, their inmate population surpassing 30,000. And by 1880, uh, the majority of these inmates were African-Americans. Overcrowding, disease, and widespread abuse of convicts at the hands of both guards and fellow inmates plagued prisons and kept death tolls high. And in the South, uh, that's where chain gangs became common, filling the labor shortage caused by the end of slavery. Prison, prisoners worked 15-hour days without pay. And Northerners also explored new penal models, including one system that required constant silence, while others tested experimental medical treatments on inmates. Um, and states put prisoners to work through this practice called convict leasing, where white planters and industrialists leased prisoners to work for them. And states and private businesses made money doing this, but prisoners obviously didn't. And this meant that many black prisoners found themselves living and working on plantations against their will and for no pay decades after the Civil War. And convict leasing was, as you can imagine, brutal and inhumane. According to the Washington Post, tens of thousands of people, overwhelmingly black, were leased by the state to plantation owners, privately owned railroad yards, coal mines, and road building chain gangs, and made to work under the whip from dawn till dusk, often as punishment for petty crimes such as vagrancy and theft. By 1910, the U.S. prison system had quadrupled in population from the past three decades. And in July of 2018, researcher Reginald Moore announced he'd found the remains of 95 black prisoners who had died working in Sugarland, Texas in the early 1900s. Experts estimated their ages were between 14 and 70, meaning that some of them would have been born um, into pre-Civil War slavery, freed, then incarcerated and forced into unpaid labor again. In Texas alone, between 1866 and 1912, more than 3,500 prisoners died. Legal scholar Michelle Alexander writes in her book, The New Jim Crow, quote, the criminal justice system was strategically employed to force African-Americans back to, into a system of extreme repression and control, a tactic that would continue to prove successful for generations to come, which brings us to today. And we're going to start to talk about what prisons look like today. Uh, today, the U.S. imprisons people like no other. One in five prisoners in the world is from the United States. 
We have 2.3 million total incarcerated people, which is nearly half a million more than the next closest country, which is China, who has 1.6 million. However, our population in the US is 328.2 million and China's is 1.4 billion. So as a percentage, we're incarcerating astronomically high amounts of people compared to other countries. We have approximately 5% of the world's total population, yet in between 20 to 25% of its total incarcerated people. And more than 60% of them are people of color and disproportionately black. Black men are six times as likely to be incarcerated as white men today. And for black men in their 30s, about one in every 12 is in prison or jail on any given day. For black men in their 20s, there's a one in eight chance of incarceration made especially more likely thanks to Ronald Reagan's war on drugs. Did you grow up hearing about the war on drugs at all? Was that a thing in your childhood? Um, I think it was very small. I mean, I do remember the D.A.R.E. program, but I think that would have been under Clinton. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But yeah, I think when I was, you know, drugs everywhere lock everybody up like if you are if you do drugs you like that just leads to murder right exactly i grew up also with that understanding that doing drugs you know the war on drugs it's like yeah people who sell drugs people who buy drugs people who do drugs they want to kill you you know it was very much like tied to this idea of fear that we should fear drugs in some way as though they're harming anybody uh, that's not the person doing the drugs, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, I remember there was like some, I don't know why I remember this, some after school special that obviously came out before I was born because those are like a lot older, where like, I think it's like some actress like Helen Hunt um, does, you know, like someone's like, take this angel dust. And then the next scene is like, ah, she's like jumping out of a window. Oh, or yeah. like, basically like, I think the whole thing was like, drug dealers are basically like you know murderers they're basically like satan yes like they are like that's all they want to do is like fuck up your life for their own personal pleasure and the pleasure that you get from drugs is fake and it's going to like you know it's it's like the and make you do crime and like it's just like yeah yeah i grew up <laughs> with this exact same thing there was highly moralizing and demoral uh, like amoralized language revolving around drugs and drug use. And, um, you know, I was probably too young to realize it at the time, but it was highly racialized, obviously, mm -hmm. especially growing up as like white children. We were taught that the drug dealers were evil and the drug dealers were dis disproportionately presented as being black men. Yes. Um, so in the 1980s, uh, this all contributed to this like national sentiment against drugs, but not in a way where we were actually concerned for the safety, like it's a public health care issue, just more in a criminalized, penalized, like fear the men, get them off the streets kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And Congress created mandatory minimum prison sentences for drug crimes. Uh, since this time, state spending on corrections has increased over 300%, and the U.S. prison population has increased over 400% just since the 80s, making the United States prison system the largest in the world, with an incarceration rate five to eight times higher than in all other developed nations. Over half of all convicted federal drug offenders have little or no criminal record, and it costs the United States between $21,000 to $33,000 per year to incarcerate each person. So today, um, African Americans make up 13% of the U.S. population and 13% of drug users. It's pretty average across the board, regardless of race. Um, but they also make up 35% of drug arrests. Um, you know, which is over twice the population, so extremely disproportionately high, 55% of drug convictions, and 74% of those sentenced to prison for drugs, making the war on drugs a contemporary black code meant to imprison black people. Oh, yeah. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, an African-American boy born in 2001 faced a 32% chance of being imprisoned at some point in his life, compared to a 17% likelihood for a Hispanic boy and a 6% likelihood for a white boy. So what is that, 12, 20? That's like over five times as likely based on race. And the number of drug offenders in state prisons has increased 13-fold since 1980. That's just for drug offenders in state prisons. Um, and 77% are nonviolent offenders. One in every 31 adults in the U.S. is now in a correction system. 
Um, over the last two decades, state spending on prisons grew at six times the spending on higher education. And the Pew Center on the states found that correction spending is outpacing government spending on education, transportation, and public assistance. Nearly $70 billion a year is spent on prisons, probation, parole, and detention centers. And much like uh, the plantations of the 1800s, prisons are a profitable business today. In 1924 to 1936, there was an effort to limit the exploitation of prisoners for free or cheap labor. Congress introduced this thing called the Asher Sumners and uh, this thing called the Walsh-Healy Act, both of which limited the reach of prison labor and the transfer of items made within prison labor across state lines. However, in 1979, Congress passed new laws overthrowing that allowing for prison-made products to be widely manufactured and distributed once again. So in the 1990s, you had companies like Victoria's Secret, Microsoft, Nintendo, AT&T, Dell, Eddie Bauer, Kmart, Macy's, Wendy's, McDonald's, Revlon, JCPenney, Sprint, Honda, Nordstrom, Texas Instruments, the TI calculators, and Starbucks using prison labor, paying between 25 cents to 40 cents an hour on average, um, with some people making $500 per year for full-time work. And in the 2000s, courts upheld that prisoners don't need to be paid for their labor at all, pursuant to the 13th Amendment, Ugh. and are paid by, quote, the grace of the state at wages ranging from 23 cents to $1.15 per hour on average in that time period, but sometimes being completely unpaid altogether. Today, prison labor persists. It is widespread. Here where we live in California, we have this thing called inmate fighters, firefighters, which I know you're familiar with. Right. In exchange for extremely dangerous work in firefighting, prisoners can earn time off of their sentence and they are paid between $2 and $5 a day, plus $1 per hour when they are working on a fire. Oh my gosh. I think I even saw something where after, um, even though they have all the certifications, there many people are still not allowed to become firefighters after their release. Because they're convicted because felons. Because they're convicted felons. It's... Uh, yes. It uh, makes me feel, uh, all of this just makes me feel so sick. <laughs> I know, it's horrifying. Um, because incarcerated firefighters are paid so little, the program saves the state of California 90 to $100 million a year. And in addition to providing cheap and unpaid labor, prisons themselves are a profitable, profitable business. Between 2000 and 2016, the number of people incarcerated in private prison facilities increased 47%, while the overall prison population increased to 9%. So we're more and more relying on these and private for-profit no prisons. One, does anyone remember like the judge who went to prison for uh, having youth offenders like go to private prisons that I can't, he was getting kickbacks from? Yes, yes. This has also happened a lot with <sighs> youth offenders and like youth correctional facilities as well. So these private prisons are, they're corporations and they're bent on maximizing profits at the end of the year, meaning they cut costs wherever possible, both on facilities and work within prisons, creating widespread safety issues for inmates. Um, and it honestly just reminds me of the plantation owners skimping on wanting to feed their, their, the enslaved people laboring for them properly or giving them proper clothes. And we kind of see this happening again with these private prisons today who are like the plantations, just dead set on creating profit at all costs. Our researchers have found that public facilities do tend to be safer than their private counterparts and that um, privately operated prisons have systemic failings in regards to um, safety and security. So there are these two companies, one's called Core Civic, and uh, that's the top one. And then the closest competitor, CEO, oh, GEO Group, they collectively manage over half of the private corrections facilities contracts in the United States. So they have combined revenues of $3.5 billion uh, annually in 2015. And Core Civic maintains more than 80,000 beds in over 70 facilities, including prisons, immigrant detention, and reentry centers. And Corrections Corporation of America, which is uh, now called Core Civic, in their 2010 annual report, they stated, quote, Growth depends on a number of factors we cannot control, including crime rates and sentencing patterns in various jurisdictions and acceptance of privatization. The demand for our facilities and services could be adversely affected by the relaxation of enforcement efforts, leniency in conviction or parole standards and sentencing practices, or through the decriminalization of certain activities that are currently proscribed by our criminal laws, end quote. Oh, it's just like, 
making the world a terrible place for shareholders. Like yes. just an, another example, like when, you know, big corporations hide their climate change details for years and they're like, well, we're responsible to our shareholders. Like, you know, exactly. who cares if the earth explodes? Like we are responsible to our shareholders. Profit like, is uh, the primary motivating factor. And these private prison companies, they team up with lawmakers, corporations, special interest groups to advocate more for private uh, prisons to become the norm through this thing called the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC. And it totally works. In 2016, the Department of Justice announced that it would phase out private prisons and stock prices dropped 50%. But then under Sessions leadership in 2017, the Department of Justice announced it was actually gonna maintain these contracts with the for-profit prisons and private prison stocks for CoreCivic and GEO Group more than doubled. These for-profit prisons combined with uh, slave-like prison labor create what we now know of today as the prison industrial complex. And according to the Center for Constitutional Rights, prisoners today are repeatedly abused by their guards, fellow prisoners, and an ineffective and apathetic system. They suffer beatings, sexual assault, prolonged solitary confinement, meager food rations, and are frequently denied medical care, which all sounds very familiar. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the rate of sexual abuse in juvenile facilities was more than five times greater than um, the parallel rate in adult facilities, which is just heartbreaking. Uh, so today, what we have is rich white corporate owners profiting off of the unpaid labor of a disproportionately high amount of people of color and in particular black men working together with local state and federal governments to ensure incarceration levels are on the rise born from and continually continuing to directly mirror the history of the enslavement and torture of black people in the united states uh, and um this reminds me there is a really good documentary about this called 13 yes by... the 13th the yes, by yes. Uh, Ava DuVernay. Yes. Uh, so for all of this imprisonment, are we any safer? And the answer is overwhelmingly no. Oh, I, why am I not surprised? <laughs> Despite having the highest rates of incarcerated individuals in the world, the U.S. ranks 128 in public safety out of 163 countries. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like how, like, when, when people are, like, like do like the wrong thing like it makes it worse like, yes like <laughs> yes the safest country in the world is actually iceland where only 200 people total are imprisoned um, granted they do have a small population but still that is a very low amount of people and icelandic prisons are nothing like what we think of in the u.s today prison cells are open inmates do weekly grocery shopping and they share the same general spaces as prison staff fostering what some there describe as a sense of community and in fact, studies have shown that sentencing someone to prison has no effect on their chances of being convicted of a violent crime within five years after being released from prison. And some studies show that being imprisoned can actually increase your odds of reoffending by 7%, which makes sense when you think about how little support networks exist for people released from prison. Like you were talking about, it's hard for convicted felons to get jobs. They very often have few opportunities to reenter what we consider like normal life, whatever that means. And this is why today so many people, and in particular black women, are spearheading a movement known as prison abolition. Figureheads like Angela Davis and Ruth Wilson Gilmore lead a movement of people wanting to halt mass incarcerations and excarcerate currently incarcerated individuals. Angela Davis argues prisons are an obsolete institution because they exacerbate societal harms instead of fixing them. Quote, are we willing to relegate even larger numbers of people from racially oppressed communities to an isolated existence marked by authoritarian regimes, violence, disease, and technologies of seclusion that produce severe mental instability, end quote. Davis contends mass imprisonment reproduces the very conditions that lead people to prison. Uh, Abolition focuses on instead restorative and transformative justice as alternatives to the prison system, which we call carceral justice, which seek to treat the cause of crime at their source to prevent crime from happening and focus on victim-centric justice that assists and aids victims in their pursuit of actual help and assistance rather than just an idea of punishment. Prison abolition is about at its core, imagining a better future through a three-point system uh, the steps are moratorium, decarceration, and excarceration. Step one is moratorium, uh, which is described by Critical Resistance co-founder Rachel Herzing as 
just stop building cages. Pretty simple, right? Yeah. Yeah. Step two, decarceration, um, is about finding ways to get people out of prison. The easy first step is to release nonviolent offenders who have no business being in prison in the first place, even within our current definition of what the business of being in prison is. So this would mean people in prison for things like drug use. Writing bad checks. Yeah, exactly. I feel like when I was a kid in the 90s, uh, you would hear stories about people getting sent to prison for life for writing bad checks. Well, yeah, because of the um, three strikes you're out thing. Yeah, and I think about that as an adult who literally, like, uses checks, like, very rarely. Like, never anymore because of electronic payments. And I'm like, dang, people used to go to prison for writing bad checks, yet I can overdraw my bank account. And it's... It's fine. All I get is a fee. Yes. I remember thinking that as a kid and not wanting a checkbook for that reason. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And then you think about so many places where obviously like marijuana use is decriminalized or legalized and yet people are still in prison in those places for marijuana related offenses. Uh, So the third step in this is excarceration, which is finding ways to reimagine and build a society that doesn't involve prison. Decriminalizing mental health episodes, fighting homelessness, decriminalizing drug use, these are pretty obvious ways to keep people from getting pipelined toward prison. Adequately funding mental health treatment, providing housing for people in need, and offering adequate rehabilitation services for people with substance uh, abuse issues, these are all critical and these are easy ways to reshape our communities. Um, Prison abolition is viewed though as a long-term multi-step process because it also involves adequately funding all of these things and it means reimagining our world. And for the people who do still commit violent crimes, like there's still accountability. Uh, Restorative justice seeks to restore the victim, their community, and the offender. And as Azura Crispino, prison labor activist and co-founder of the Prison Abolition and Prisoner Support Group, defines this, uh, it's a concept of asking the offender what in their life has led them to commit the act and what we can all do to change those conditions. Through either restorative or transformative justice, the systemic analysis takes place of individual interrogation and punishment. According to an article I read in The Nation, quote, these processes are hardly new. Abolitionists trace the root of restorative justice back to a wide variety of indigenous and religious practices, such as the Mohawk Nation of Akwesasne Band Council in Canada, which has established uh, Indigenous People's Court according to the Mohawk principles. As Bonnie Cole, an Indigenous prosecutor, explained, it's not just looking at penalizing. That's old thinking. That's outside thinking. Likewise, the Jewish practice of teshuva or atonement has been linked not only to punishing the offender, but also to a holistic reparation of the relationship between offender and victim. Another Canadian indigenous people, the Minikaning, avoids the term offender and victim altogether, focusing instead on the behavior of the individuals and how it impacts the community. Uh, And then this question always comes up. People always ask this, okay, maybe I'm on board, but what about the rapists and the murderers? This is always the question people ask. Um, And the reality is our prisons actually don't do a whole lot to stop that now. The current system is often so traumatizing for victims um, that for sexual assaults, only 5% end in arrest and only 0.7% end in felony conviction uh, right now to begin with. So right now, 99.3% of rapists are not facing any form of justice whatsoever. Um, And as for murder, well, we we know that we're in a historically low point in violent crime and that rates are dropping every single year. Like using FBI data, the violent crime rate fell nearly 50% from 1993 to 2019. And many hypothesize that something as simple, like we talked about in the last episode, is removing lead from gasoline accounted for up to 90% of that dip in violent crime that we currently enjoy today. However, for crime that does occur, the current, you know, quote unquote, justice system we have isn't working either. Uh, Most of the crimes that are reported to the police are not solved. Nearly 40% of murders in particular go unsolved. And the ones that are solved come with a slew of issues. First of all, there's a discrepancy in gendered violence. Um, If a woman kills a a man who's her partner, she gets 15 to 20 years in prison on average. But if a man kills a woman who's his partner, he usually only gets two to six years. Whoa. Yeah. You know, I was just thinking, I was watching the documentary on the Golden State Killer, and I was just like, wow, police are bad at their jobs. Yeah. They're like, we were listening to one, um, like, murder podcast together, and uh, the woman who was hosting was like, oh, yeah, like, 
only 50% of cri- violent crimes are solved. And in, in, in some places it's really low in some places it's like really high, but it never reached like, like 99%. No, no, no. Where, you know, like in the media in the United States, they're like every, like there's all these serial killers who are being caught by these detectives and yeah. like, like, or like CSI where like every single thing, it's like, no, they're not doing that. And first of all, these crimes are really rare. Right. And when they happen, the reality is they're not getting solved today very much. And when they even when they are solved, um, a lot of time it's the wrong person. Um, That's why places like the Innocence Project exist. And of course, when we're going to wrongfully accuse and convict somebody of a crime like murder, it's probably going to be black men because racism is so entrenched in our system. That's why um, so many people who are even conservative, quote unquote, conservative people are against the death penalty because it's so disproportionate. Yes. So um, black men are usually, yeah, wrongfully convicted for these crimes. Of the 185 people exonerated from death row since 1973, uh, 53% are black and nearly half of the people currently on death row are black. Uh, Innocent black people are seven times more likely to be wrongfully convicted of murder than innocent white people. And police misconduct occurred in more than half of all wrongful murder conviction cases involving innocent black people, Uh, which makes sense if you remember, you know, after the Civil War, how most of the police were were people who had fought for the Confederacy. They were fighting on behalf of the plantation owners. And there's just this legacy of the police system in our country. It's built off of that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's built off of this idea, which I think accounts for a lot of why our current police system is it can't be fixed. It, there's no fixing it. We've gone to, yeah, it's too it need, messed up. Yeah. Um, so what we see is murders are not being solved accurately now. Justice is not being served to anyone, including victims. Uh, according to studies, something like restorative justice uh, has findings showing that it's more effective as a method of improving victor of offender, victim offender satisfaction, increasing offender compliance with restitution, and decreasing uh, the chances of reoffending when compared to more traditional criminal justice responses like incarceration or probation or court ordered restitution. So while prisons contribute oftentimes to a 7% increase in reoffending, restorative justice programs have contributed to a 26% reduction in offending. And many victims report being more pleased with the outcomes of this versus, you know, the car- carceral alternative. So that leads us to the question, do we continue to punish people just because we like it, even though it doesn't actually help our communities or make us safer and is rooted in a legacy of racism that is so deeply entrenched in our country's history um, that it cannot be separated from our current justice system, whatever that means? Or do we actually want safer communities with less crime and fewer victims? Because if we want the last one, prison's not the way to do it. Yeah, and there's there's so much research out, or, you know, research on their commentary by so many amazing people. I have was just starting reading a book about um, on prison abolition. I am spacing the author, so sorry, um, but it's called "We Do This Till We Free Us." Oh yeah, it's um, I'm gonna look it up really fast, but yeah. continue. But there is just so much research and so much like history into the system of like you know, what do we do when people do bad things? Right. It's um, Mariame Kaba. Yes, yes, yes. I don't know why I was spacing. But or thank- Mariam Kaba. Yeah. And there's just so much history and so much research and where it's like the modern form of prison is a very new idea. And to me... It, the modern carceral state in America is about continuing this horrible legacy of racism um, rather than about actually solving the problem. It's about right. torturing people into compliance yeah. rather than creating a safer society because all the data and just, you know, the says that it actually increases crime right. as far as I know. And also just like the, um, the moral thing, it's like, is it, is it okay to torture people? Is it because this, that's what that is. It's torture. Like, absolutely. Like growing up in a prison town, 
where they have the federal supermax and they're like, oh, I was like, remember being a teenager and hearing this. They're like, oh yeah, my dad, cousin, family has a job where they, um, they work in the supermax and there's a train that goes around. So all the supermax prisoners, because technically they have to leave their cell an hour a day, they just get into a shower on the train track. So they don't even leave. I'm like, that is absolute torture. Yeah. Like being confined to that small of a space is that's, that's like hell, like yeah. biblical hell, which it's like, I just don't understand where this idea of like torturing people into compliance and we think that it's the right thing to do. It's, right. it's kind of like the old school idea. Well, if we scream at them enough and beat them, they'll do the right thing. I'm like, does that ever work for people? Like usually it's like helping them and being nice to people, then they're nice or they or do better yeah like I just don't under I just don't understand this and I know it's hard because like you know we're just in entrenched in our culture of this idea that you need to punish people to fix things right right yeah we're so caught up on the idea of punishment that we can't imagine a world where justice doesn't involve punishment and not to say that people don't deserve accountability yeah accountability is i think that's punishment i think people think that they're the same thing right but i think it's different because punishment doesn't necessarily mean the person is accountable right or you create a safer environment i think a major thing too is that um like as a woman like i've been the victim of sexual assault and i personally feel that people don't actually care about my safety um you know, I, I feel like my safety is used as a convenient talking point for people want, who want to uphold this myth, you know, that there are, there are bad guys in the world who want to hurt me and the only thing that will keep me safe is locking them away forever, um, even though statistically, like, the evidence doesn't show that locking them away keeps me any safer. And the reality is I don't think that in practice our criminal justice system actually cares about my safety as a woman. Um, we find that disproportionately men accused of domestic violence, which is a major issue that everybody faces, but uh, disproportionately highly women face it. You know, that's a thing that's not taken seriously by our current system. Sexual assault is not something that's taken seriously by our current system. And again, I know every victim is not like me. We are not monolith. We all have different needs and wants and ideas of what will keep us safe and, and make us feel good. But a thing I dislike is when um, people use my safety as a convenient talking point but but their actions show they don't actually care. So I think that the question where people are always like, what about the rapists and the murderers? Uh, the thing that I always get stuck on is, do you actually care about them now? What are you doing to keep women safe in your community now? Do you actually care about rape rapists? Do you care about sexual assault? Do you care about any of these things? Because if you did, you know, under a current system, there were probably be more than a 0.7% conviction rate, given it's the only form of justice actually available to us right now. And, you know, the idea that most women don't report their assaults, that's for a reason. And that reason um, is at the police level, for sure. It's also at the cultural level. Absolutely. Yeah. So you have these people who contribute in their day-to-day life to a culture where women feel unsafe, even talking about the ways they've been harmed. And yeah, I feel that those are the people most likely in these conversations to go, well, what about the rapists? And that's the thing I get stuck on where I'm just like, what about them? What do you do in your day-to-day life to make women feel safe around you with their stories, with their experiences? Like, what about the rapists now? They're not, there's, there's nothing, nothing's happening. Nothing's happening to them. You know, I, I haven't, I've been assaulted three times. I haven't reported any of them because I don't feel that we have a culture uh, where it's safe for me to do so. I feel the easiest thing for me to preserve my mental health and my well-being is to not talk about it or not talk about it specifically anyway, not to name names, not to point fingers. That's the, the current carceral system has created that where Victims are forced to publicly defend themselves, to double down on their stories, to remember everything exactly accurately uh, in order to get this conviction that sends some man away to prison for forever. And that doesn't even go into the fact that like a lot of these people, I don't want them to be in prison forever. That isn't the restitution that would actually help me. You know, some of these people, what would help me is a conversation where I could candidly sit down with them and have them acknowledge what happened and what they did and 
like understand why they did this and stop them from doing it to other women in the future. Because I know a lot of these men are going to continue to do this to women in the future unless I come forward and ruin my life in order to publicly accuse them of this crime and go through a court process to send them to jail, uh, send them to prison. And like, that's a hard decision for any victim to make. Like no victim should have to make that decision to ruin their own own life and have a 0.7% chance it will lead to this man not hurting people in the future. Mm -hmm. It's a thing I think about a lot. Anyway, I don't know. Do you have any... It's it's so hard because it the 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 rapist and the murderer question is the one that is absolutely gets hung up on and it it's hard to be like it's terrible it's wrong and we need some sort of preventative societal change to make sure it doesn't happen or is acceptable in the first place right in the culture and it's it's really fucking hard but I. I think all, you know, everything bears out that the carceral state, prisons, police, this is not, this is not the answer. It's not working. The answer is, is society, the culture itself coming together to find another way. Right, right. And yeah, it's like a lot of times people want to paint you, we've talked about this before, as, um, like a rape apologist if yeah. you are a prison abolitionist and it's hard though to look at all of the data and like as a sexual assault survivor in particular it's hard to look at that data and think that prison is the right thing to do it's like uh on the on the contrary i i would easily think that people who think prisons are working in our current system are, is working with a 0.7 percent conviction rate for rapists in general it's like if you think that's working that's to me more rape apology like you think the system where 99.3 percent of offenders have absolutely no repercussions or accountability in their life like if you think that's the system that's working like that's the thing that's more broken to me personally yeah and especially with with like like the idea of like murderers we think of like serial killers and stuff like that where it's like it's so I don't know. It's really fucking hard because on one hand, it's like with lar- you know, with larger crime, it's like how do you prevent something like that that is just so rare and like how like like you know, I think it's all about listening to, you know, people who've been impacted by that and from what the data yeah. stands out, it's more about restorative yeah restorative actions and also i think that like we get caught up on the idea of the murderers right and we go to like the serial killer thing despite the fact that it's like 54 percent of all people are killed by someone they know exactly that i think that's what i was trying to yeah and and for women it's even higher like what percent of women are killed by people they know i'm looking it up right now it's where we it's like because 64 percent for women because men are more likely to be the victims of of random crime yeah and it's like then there's a a whole other conversation about misogyny and gender violence and right and how it manifests where i think in in our culture it's like well we just lock all the all the bad people up like and it's like i do think it's interesting it's it's so hard but it's like it's it's one of those things it's like it's the 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 prison is not there needs to be a larger force at work to to have accountability mm-hmm. for prevention for helping everybody involved in the situation and everything that we know throughout history society is just this doesn't work right i think it's telling that the leaders in prison abolition today are women mm-hmm. and when I talk about these concepts, the people I usually get the most pushback from are men. And I think it contributes to this idea that like the men we know aren't the ones harming us when actually statistically we know they are the ones harming us. The, me- the men we know uh, have this idea that there are cowboy defenders, you know, who are going to protect us from the bad they're guy on the, the street. They're the good guys. Right. They're the good guys. They're in the white hat and there's some random man, unnamed stranger in the black hat who's the bad guy. And, um, you know, they're going to keep us safe from it while still being able to move through life without taking accountability for the ways in which they wrong us, which overwhelmingly, statistically, they are the ones harming us. That is a good point. Also, I think it's one of those things. It's like in, in like movie or TV style, it's like 
we we got the bad guy. We locked him up. The end. Where it's right. like, well, what happens after that? Right. What, what happens? happens after that? Yes. Exactly. And no one was like, it's done. <laughs> Everything is solved. They're they're in they're behind bars. The the shootout's over, and you know they're lying on the ground. It's like, well, what what happens after that? Like, right. It's it's a continued thing. Right. It's like. It goes on beyond that for sure. And I mean, yeah, I think it is. I, I do think it is a convenient, a convenient way to misdirect our attention and make us think, you know, the cops on the street are doing it. They're keeping us safe when they're not. And to make us think the men in our lives are safe when they're not. And to make us think that the ultimate villain in all of this, even if they're not telling us outright, the statistics show that what the system wants us to believe is the ultimate villain in the world is the black man. Mm-hmm. And as a white woman, especially being aware acutely of how much, like, the the concept of white women's tears, like, women crying, the idea of white women being harmed, like, the idea of white women being harmed historically has been used to lock up so many black men and statistically so many innocent black men. And that's a thing, like, as a white woman, I think is important to be acutely aware of, uh, which isn't to say that, you know, women aren't justified in being afraid of men in general. Um, but it's to, to acknowledge that as white women in particular, our fear is used to justify a carceral system that involves police that overwhelmingly lock up black men and lead to black men being wrongly accused and convicted of crimes and just lead to a general idea of fear that motivates these, these ideas that ultimately serve to make white men in power at corporations richer. Yeah. And there's, I, you know, I feel like I'm like, there are so many more smarter people than me who have so much more to say. Um, well, it's black women this. leading the movements yeah, and like, they are doing all the work absolutely. and they are the smartest among us. Especially always. That we, we do, uh, we do this till we free us book. Yeah. Like thing, reading stuff like that. Yeah. I think it's like, if you read that, like Angela Davis, you know, why are prisons obli? Even um, there's like a Verso book um, by called like the end of policing. Mm-hmm. Like if you, I'm not actually sure who that's written by. So, but the first two books, it's like if you read those, like all that, you will walk away thinking about how effective prisons are. Right, and then yeah, like Ruth Wilson Gilmore also talking about how, um, like the the systems we create like if we treat people with like kindness and love and respect we're more likely to see that in our societies and like we those are the cultures we build like we built this culture you know where we have unique the violence we do have you know mass shootings and these things are unique forms of violence that other countries uh don't really experience to the level or in the way we do and that's a part of our cult our culture we've made that culture i was seeing this meme pop up recently where it's just like wow like I don't, I don't know who said it. It's like, wow, what a radical, it, it's so, what a radical thought that I just want people to be okay. Right. Like, right. And instead we have a culture of violence and fear and, and profit motivating everything and who yeah. profits. I always think who profits from our fear. Yeah. And it's just like what it, it, it seems like haha, but it's like, wow, I just want every, everyone to be okay. And then someone will pop up out of the word would work and be like, well, I don't think everyone should be okay. And you're like, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then what ends up happening is, yeah, we have the system where like, you know, the core civics and the GEO groups of the world get mm-hmm. to just maximize their profits and pocket money, pocket money, pocket money. While, you know, black men are sitting there in prisons, you know, contributing to Starbucks and Victoria's Secret making cheap products for us. I don't know. It's, it's just, it is a thing. It's just one of those things that like, as a white woman, I feel is my duty and responsibility to be acutely aware of and question the role I play in this system. And that's why, um, prison abolition has been such an important thing for me personally to look into and learn more about. And yeah, so I feel like There's no good way to end this episode, but I feel like if you have never read about prison abolition before and you were listening and you were like, I'm interested, I'm maybe kind of on board, I still have some misgivings, that makes sense because it's a new concept, right? I would encourage you to to read um, some of the writings of 
black women who, again, are spearheading this movement, um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, uh, Angela Davis, uh, Mariama Kaba, any of these people, their writings will be able to speak more on this topic than, than we can. But if anybody reading this has their mind or listening to this has their mind changed at all, uh, maybe we've done an okay thing to at least introduce you to this concept that many black women can explain and discuss better than we can. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast episode. If you would like to uh, subscribe to our Patreon, we are patreon.com slash pickmeupimscared. For $2 a month, you can get access to a link on our website where you can leave us voice messages and talk to us. And we might play them on our next episode and give you our advice, our feedback on problems you might be having in your life, answer your questions, anything your heart desires. And if you don't want to give us your $2 a month, that is fine too. We understand completely. That is your $2 a month. You keep it. Uh, I forgot what I was talking about. Okay, yeah, that's it. Thanks. Bye.